Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk, and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. If you're a fan of this podcast, please do spread the word. Leave us a review, share our episodes on social media, or just drop us an email to let us know what you like about the show. On today's episode, Ethan, David, and Lillian earn their podcasting scout badges in the company of Susie and Sam in Wes Anderson's 2012 adventure romance, Moonrise Kingdom. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Uh, My name is David Hartley, and I am joined by Ethan Lyon and Lillian Crawford today for an episode where we are going to be talking about um, the the film Moonrise Kingdom. And this is the first time, actually, that we've been talking about Wes Anderson, although we have been uh, um, wanting to talk about Wes Anderson for for a long while on here for many reasons, I think. Uh, Anyway, Ethan has an introduction prepared uh, I'm very excited about this because you were very excited about this, Ethan. So I'm yes. going to pass over to you yes. and, and go ahead. You can take it away. Hello, all you khaki scouts out there. Yes, indeed, we are covering Moonrise Kingdom, Wes Anderson's seventh feature and the first that I ever saw. This is, again, like my True Stories episode, this is an absolute delight. This is one of my favourite films. And indeed, it's one of uh, one of my friend Lillian Crawford's too. Uh, Moonrise Kingdom is uh, set on a... New England Island and the year 1965 and chronicles two socially awkward misfits, Susie and Sam, as they escape from their, the trappings of their dreary humdrum lives and escape into the wilderness to find something more adult. Along the way, they encounter a depressed police chief as played by Bruce Willis, two very argumentative lawyers, a entire troop of khaki scouts, Bob Balaban wearing a wonderful red coat and, a, and the general Wes Anderson style. And indeed, is that style in itself autistic? That's one of the things we're going to be discussing today. So um, with that in mind, as I said, this was my first Wes Anderson film. I was wondering what was both of your uh, first Anderson films, if uh, because I'm, uh, if any, because I'm pretty sure you and I, Lillian, have seen all of his films now, oh, yeah. including a fair, including a fair few of the shorts. I'm pretty sure. Like, I, I I've seen everything that Liz Anderson has made several times over. So I I would like to think that I am sort of, I don't know. I've sort of got his his entire sort of filmography locked away inside my brain. So talking about something like Moonrise Kingdom is just like, oh, good. Like we can just talk about something that's sort of an environment or a world that I just sort of always feel like I'm a part of and, and certainly did the first time that I saw this film. When did it come out? 2012. So I think that was when um, I probably I probably watched it in 2012. I honestly can't really remember because I think 
I was so immersed in the film itself that I don't really remember the conditions in which I first watched it. That uh, right from sort of the outset, it, it immediately made me go, oh my goodness, this girl is kind of like myself. Um, um, right, like she's listening to Benjamin Britten and she's reading library books that she's stolen. <laughs> and um, <laughs> this is very sort of pre-teenage Lily, I guess it's sort of behavior. Um, and it is it, sort of, I, I, I think that, that that then sort of led me to, to look at Wes's other films. Um, and, and certainly Grand Budapest when that went, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel when that came out and um, Royal Tenenbaums has always been my favorite um, because Margot Tenenbaum to me is sort of an older version of Susie Bishop. She's like sort of, the next stage of, of of what sort of autistic girls <laughs> go on to, so to sort of uh, start to feel like, or at least, or at least uh, the, the sort of the form of autism, whatever that might be, that that I have. So, so I, I think that that's that's why this film is so so special to me. Um, so yeah, it's I, I I think what you were saying about sort of the aesthetic is so important as well. And I'm sure we'll talk about that and, and sort of Robert Yeoman's cinematography and, and, and all of the sort of glorious production design and the, the, the mannered style that riles so many people. And yet for me is how every single film should be shot. And if it's not shot like that, then why on earth do, would you call it cinematography? <laughs> anyway, that's, <laughs> that's, that, that's a personal thing I, I i love sort of how controlled everything is um that's that's very special to me and it's it's a it's a form of cinema that i feel very safe in um i think that's that's sort of what i'm trying to drive at is is that is the familiarity and style and and sort of control um is is very important in all aspects of my life because you don't get that in the real world <laughs> and and you do in, in a Wes Anderson film. And obviously that's where a lot of the criticism around him sort of comes in. But I always find that the things that people criticize Wes Anderson for are exactly the things that, that, that mean so much to me. There's one that there's actually, um, before I get to your, your experience of, of, um, Anderson, David, mm -hmm. there's a quote I'd like to read. I was doing a bit of research on this yesterday because it's been a long time since uh, I have actually touched an Anderson film. Uh, but we rewatch. This is a quote. This is a quote I found from an article from 2005. And I think it's interesting to structure the overall argument that we're going to have later on. This is at the end of a, a, a piece someone did uh, just after Life Aquatic came out. And it goes, he is increasingly loud but incommunicative and deaf to emotional signs and triggers. He seems to be fashioning an aesthetics of autism. It's all right to build Rushmore's out of our passions, but if we seal ourselves within them, then we have nothing to gain and nothing to share. The private language that Anderson opened to public in his early works, which uh, he, the writer in particular, praises Rushmore, which is my favourite. Who, who is the writer? Sorry, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. A gentleman called Jacob Siegel. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. I think I've read yeah. this. Sorry. Carry on. <laughs> I only found this yesterday. The private language uh, in his early works has been codified and exhausted of meaning. It's time he found a new idiom. Now, there are a couple of things which interest me here. One is the way in which the phrase autism and autistic is used, which I'm not quite sure is, shall we say, kosher. I think there's something actually quite, um, I think there's something a little bit derogatory there, if I'm brutally honest. Mm. However, there is an interesting 
conversation, I think, which opens up partly about my concerns with Anderson, especially some of his later works, and also a conversation about what is it, what does it mean to be an autistic artist, in particular, the fascination with repetition, uh, which is, and which in some respects is an essential part of the autistic experience, the repetition of concepts and movements and ideas providing a great sense of pleasure. Um, but does that fundamentally alienate individuals or does that actually open up an entire world for an autistic viewer, which is what I think you, Lillian, have been saying. Um, but David, I think I did cut across you. So, uh, no, it's been, it's been really interesting listening to the pair of you on this because, um, I, um, Yes. What's my relationship with Wes Anderson? Okay, right. So for a long while, so I haven't seen every Wes Anderson film, so I'm not um, as as uh, as well upon him as 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 you two are. Um, I for a while I didn't like Wes Anderson films. Um, I was a bit of a critic of his films, but I didn't. I couldn't really pin down exactly why, um, and I I wonder if part of it was just me being a bit contrary and um you know sort of cutting against the grain of what everybody else seems to really really like and it was it got to a point where it was a bit annoying where everyone was talking about Wes Anderson like he was like the messiah of cinema and, and I was like oh, no, no, no. And I'd seen I think my first Anderson was uh, I think it was Fantastic Mr Fox actually it was the first time I watched a, a Wes Anderson film which I quite liked but wasn't I didn't sort of love necessarily um I think what really annoyed me about that film, although I, I've only seen it the once, I, I I didn't like George Clooney as Mr. Fox. I just didn't like, I thought it was intrusive um, to have that kind of voice attached to that character because I had, I know, I know the book of Fantastic Mr. Fox quite mm. well, and it just didn't fit my, my imagination of what that, of what that should be mm, really necessarily. Absolutely. Um, and then I saw Life Aquatic and, and I think I just didn't get it. Um, and then I saw Grand Buddha. Oh no! Then I saw Moonrise Kingdom, and I and I did enjoy Moonrise Kingdom. And, I, and actually, when I saw that at the cinema, I went to see that with a, a few friends, um, a few friends who I consider like my silly friends, friends who are like not silly as in like there's it's silly that they are my friends, but that they are people who like silliness, like enjoy silliness, and I really appreciate that. And we had a really good time watching this film at the cinema, we, but we all really enjoyed it. We're all giggling away and laughing away at it. And I do think back to that moment of watching Moonrise Kingdom in the cinema quite often and think, oh, that was a really lovely cinema moment. That was a really lovely moment where everyone who was together in that, you know, all of my friends and me, we were all in tune with each other. We were all laughing and giggling. And, and when we came out, you know, we were chatting about the film endlessly. So Moonrise Kingdom for me was certainly the the Wes Anderson film that I uh, connected with the most and enjoyed the most. And it was really great to return back to it this week and watch it again and rediscover it and think, yes, actually, I really like this one. This is really great. And I also had a, I, I did see Grand Budapest Hotel when that came out as well. And I was quite excited to see that and remember being a bit, um, a bit disappointed by it, I think. And I think the reason for that was because I'd watched the trailer for the film a number of times, really enjoyed the trailer, uh, had a lot of funny moments in the trailer. And then I felt my sort of criticism when I came out the other side of that film was, 
all the funny bits were in the trailer and none of the rest of it really made me laugh. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I think I, so I was a bit like a bit like deflated by it a little bit. And I think on from that point on, I was on a bit of a kind of slightly anti-Wes Anderson groove. And I just sort of thought, no, he's not for me. I'm not going to watch his films. I'm, I'm not interested. However, in recent years, um, uh, in this sort of project and process that I've been on and starting to sort of reconsider um, films and cinema from a kind of neurodivergent or autistic perspective. It's really interesting now to return to Wes Anderson and his films and his style of filmmaking and rethink them in this context. This is why I, I was so keen to do an episode on Moonrise Kingdom on Wes Anderson to hear this perspective because I'm starting to reevaluate mm-hmm. what that Anderson aesthetic is actually doing and what and how it can be meaningful for someone and perhaps why I as somebody who is not autistic didn't quite connect in the same way with it potentially mm. I mean I think a lot of, and particularly with like Rushmore um and this film um perhaps a lot of of what works about Anderson's films is the connection that you as an individual might have with the sort of stories that he's telling and the sort of characters that he's putting on screen. And I was, you know, at school, I was not like Max from Rushmore. I was not like um, Sam from Moonrise Kingdom. That was not the kind of person I was, although I was part of the Scouts, I must admit, I did spend many years in the Scouts. Mm. Um, So maybe that was perhaps why maybe I felt as if I was weirdly kind of alienated from this world because it was not a kind of world that I was that I had a, a nostalgia for in a in a strange kind of way. Um, anyway, it's 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 a really interesting sort of almost like a little bit of a puzzle box in my brain about how I'm trying to unlock Wes Anderson as a filmmaker. Uh, but I certainly appreciate him as a filmmaker. I think he he makes obviously gorgeous films and his control, as you were saying, Lillian, his control of the the cinematography, the mise en scène, and everything you can see on the screen is immaculate and he has this singular vision Mm. it's just not always a vision that i've always felt like i've understood or been emotionally connected to Mm. but an interesting and fascinating phenomenon of a filmmaker anyway and i i also read that jacob siegel article yesterday as well ethan so i'm glad you uh, picked up on that Mm. because um um yeah i I read that whole thing and i thought because the sort of title of that of that um essay is it, it mentions the aesthetics of autism in the title, right? And then it, for a long time throughout that essay, you don't get any mention of mm. autism. I was like, mm. I almost had to like control yeah. F and be like, where is yeah. where is he <laughs> saying autism here? And it's only right at the end in that paragraph that you were just uh, quoting where he starts to talk about um, rather disparagingly starts to, starts to suggest that Anderson has this quote unquote aesthetics of autism, which is repeating across his films yeah. and that he needs a new idiom, whatever that might mean. Mm. Um, and I disagreed with it. I sort of thought, oh, no, no, actually, no. Because what you've got here is somebody who's got a singular style and vision. It is repeating themes and ideas and characters and actors, in fact, but is also, but is, but you know, that's what, that's what auteurs do. That's what creative people do. You do repeat the things. You do re- revisit themes that you're looking at because it's a way of figuring that sort of stuff out, I think, over time, I guess. Yeah, interesting, though. Yeah, and I, I think Ethan, you you sort of touched on something really interesting, and in that you said that it sort of sounds almost derogatory in the way that that he's talking about autism. And I think I think that's why you know 
I'm not someone who easily gets offended by people having different opinions on films to me. You know, I mean, if I went through life thinking that I wouldn't be able to talk about films um, or anything. Uh, it's it's fine because I always know I'm right and I'm always willing to listen. Citation to needed, but okay. <laughs> but on on the on 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 Anderson, I think what's so what what it upsets me more than it does in any other context because it almost feels like it's <laughs> criticisms of that sort of style and that way of looking at the world is almost a criticism of autism sometimes or or, or for this sort of mm. if you're saying oh it's so it's so people want to use the word autistic i don't think everyone goes that far in that case they do yeah. go that far um it's it's it, it always strikes me as something that's like okay well that's that's not a worldview that actually exists or isn't valid which i find so alarming and i told a lie earlier you're absolutely right fantastic mr fox was the first yes yeah, same, same the reason why i i always forget this because when i watched it i had no idea who it right. was made by because i was a child on a plane and i was like oh look Roald Dahl. Yeah. Um, and i think it had the same jarring reaction uh, sorry j jarring effect on me as it did on on you sort of go being raised on Roald Dahl and sort of being obsessed with the books and Fantastic Mr Fox included and you know I mean it was it's certainly far from far from my favorite Roald Dahl I was very much more a Matilda girl <laughs> as you can probably imagine Big but um, I, 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 I uh, yeah exactly <laughs> but like I, I, I think I think watching Fantastic Mr Fox it, what I really really loved was sort of the relate the relationship between Christopherson and Ash in that film and the way that Ash behaves and the way that Ash right, sort yeah. of is, you know, what, what does, what does Mr. Fox do? Like <laughs> different or whatever, like that kind of weird. Yeah. That, yeah. We're moving our hands sort of. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, <laughs> it's like, Oh wow. Okay. So that, that, that's, that's, um, it, he, he, it, the, the sort of, the idea of difference is so interesting in these films. And I think this is something I really want to come to because thinking about Fantastic Mr. Fox and sort of the way that Mr. and Mrs. Fox talk about Ash in that film and the way they sort of have these private parental conversations is so, well, it, it's, it's quite alarming to me, I suppose, because I know that my own parents were probably talking about me in the same way. And I, I used to be like mm. on the playground at school and I, and I, sort of clocked on quite at an early age that there was often someone there watching me and that they were not watching anyone else. I used to come home and say, um, the spy was in school today. Um, and it was because <laughs> they were assessing me for autism. Um, but like, I, I, um, you know, the, the, the idea that that was discreet is quite alarming to me. And I, I think, I think, I think there's a, there's a, there's a moment of course in, in, um, in Moonrise Kingdom where Susie Bishop finds this book that's called coping with the very troubled child yeah. and that that is like oh my goodness <laughs> i remember first seeing that and being like oh i wonder what the title of the book was that was sort of lying around in our house. <laughs> um, <laughs> sort of dealing with with, with with a girl who you know doesn't interact like perhaps other girls do or or, or is sort of would pr prefer escaping in the worlds of sort of fantasy fiction rather than actually playing with other children or wh wh whatever, you know? And I think that's what's so, so moving and so tender about Moonrise Kingdom is that she finds someone 
who she can have that form of relationship with, that she finds someone to have a bond with when she can't necessarily find that with her own parents at that point in her life. She might go on to, um, or or with her brothers who are just, you know, annoying little shits. Um, sorry, we love to swear. <laughs> yeah, of course. But, but, I, mean, li- I mean, Lionel is a pain. Lionel is a pain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, there's sort of scenes where she's like, silently shouting at her parents over dinner because she's so frustrated with them and can't understand the way they're behaving and or, si- or silently decking a kid yes that's uh, there's true. the there's the, the bit little bit earlier where she uh, is in class and i think it's it's a mirror of what happens with sam and again actually that's something which mm. which reminds me of um autistic women i've spoken to friends of mine who have spoken about how as children or as young girls, they often experience these moments of very intense anger oh, yeah. and like physical physical violence against both boys and girls. Uh, so there is, I think, something For sure. yeah. in that. And I, I, then again, I think there's something in Anderson in general, which is interesting about violence and how violence is framed and structured. Oh, and again, and of course, against herself, which is so striking. Mm. You know, the first, the, the, that, that scene where they, they yes. sort of meet together mm. and, it, and it flashes back to the, um, to the Noah's Blood production at the, mm. at the parish. More biographic, autobiographical notes on that later. Um, but like, and, 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 and he sort of asks what happens to her hand and she says, I hit a mirror. And it's like, why did you hit a mirror? Because I was angry at myself. And it's mm. like, oh my God, okay. Um, you know, I, 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 I think that, yeah, those feelings of rage do come. And I, 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 I don't know if to an extent that's an autistic thing or, or, or what it is, but you can sort of, when you don't understand or, it's, or something is undiagnosed, and you don't identify within yourself why you're behaving a certain way or why you're feeling a certain way, that can lead to those feelings of anger and, mm. and sort of self-loathing in many ways. You know, Sam asks her if she's depressed. Um, I mean, I, I, the extent to which depression is present in this film is, 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 is complicated. I, th- I, th- I, think, I think that the, the, the easiest assumption to make is that everyone in every Wes Anderson film is depressed. Like that's just, it's just de facto. Yeah, like yeah. that's not, that's not, yeah, you know, it's it's. I mean, is that true? Is that true of the? Is that is that true of the real world? Probably, but um, <laughs> also like, yeah. Um, I, I I certainly felt that watching French Dispatch and sort of all these these very melancholic writers and uh, critics to, sitting around writing their articles and sort of you know th- those interactions. Oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> I was going to say, Lillian was like, "Oh my god, I'm home." <laughs> Let, let's just say I was the only person who gave that film a standing ovation at its um, <laughs> London Film Festival premiere. I'd love to see that. <laughs> that's 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 Lillian. That's our Lillian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sat right in the mid- sat right in the middle of the front row. So I always do. But I, I suppose the, the sorry the point I was coming to was that scene with the with the book when she when she shows Sam the book, mm. and I think what's so horrifying to me and that gets me every time and makes me just weep is the way he laughs at her. Oh God, mm. I'm getting emotional just talking about it. Mm. Like, it's, it's, ah, <laughs> it's so hard. It's when so someone, hard. when someone almost mocks you for yeah. your neurodivergence, um, you know, such a lack of understanding. And that, and that's why, you know, even, 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 I, I, I wanted to ask you and, and, and you too, David, uh, about, about sort of the, ex- 
how how we would sort of define Sam's behavior and and the way he looks yeah. at, at things. Mm. But to me in that scene, it's just so typical of trying to open up as a neurodivergent person to a neurotypical person right. and finding that there's sort of a friction that comes out of that. And her reaction to that is exactly how I would react. Yeah, I, I agree. Slam something down to, to, <laughs> and go and knock myself in a darkened tent. You know? <laughs> I, 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 I think that scene is so overwhelming. And, and, what, and what's, you know, most that, that scene on is so mannered in its emotions. Like it's so quiet. And yet there's so, to me, that can be so much more emotional than, you know, if there was a sort of sweeping score and, right. you know, people were sort of like, oh, I love you or whatever, you know, like <laughs> most sort of melodrama looks like. Mm. It's the complete opposite of melodrama. And yet to me, there is so much more emotion in that scene than there is in, in I don't know what I'm thinking of, but yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's, I mean, I, I'd like to take up the mental on Sam briefly yeah please do because sam so when i saw this film i should say a couple of things before we go any further something we should have clarified a little earlier for our conversation is while we do think that anderson's films arguably do um appeal to an autistic audience such as myself and lillian and probably countless other autistic people out there um we should also stress that anderson has never either said he is autistic no. or mm-hmm. had a uh, or had a diagnosis and we want to make sure that we stress that uh, now, uh, for as 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 a as an expression of the fact that while we find great comfort and joy in his films, uh, we are aware that we are perhaps applying, we are perhaps cr- crafting an interpretation out of elements of text that may be unconscious. Having yeah. said that, that's a good way for me to lean into Sam Trukowski. Now, when I first saw Moonrise Kingdom, I was I think it was also 2012. It wasn't in the cinema. It was at home on a Netflix DVD, actually, uh, back when they used to do that. <laughs> Love Film. Mm. Well, yes, it was. It was Love Film. Mm. And um, I, I I look a little like Sam, but I think that was my mm. only real... Um, have you seen Jared Gilman now? Seriously, you really remind me of him. <laughs> really? I have seen him recently. I did see him. He does look like me, but without a beard. Um, no, he I, did have a beard for a while. Did he really? Like. Oh, no. Mate, you'll have to show me. You're also wearing your, your your pale yeah. yellow sort of khaki yes. scout uniform today. Yes, this um, is... I, yes, should, so. I should point out that this is an audio... Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. medium <laughs> no i decided to wear one of my nice t-shirts today because the last time i did a, a podcast i was in my pajamas um oh, God. <laughs> uh, david only found that out at the end of the episode as i say it's it's not a visual medium it's no, no no no, no. i know i know i like to peek i like to peek behind the curtain but <laughs> but in, in relation to sam i didn't have that sense of connection uh, because i did not think of myself as autistic during that period in my life Mm. Um, I think I barely had any recognition that I was different. I always knew I was a little different, but I uh, will put it this way. I thought it was more to do with my own failings than any sort of neurodivergence or mental difference. Rewatching it, I don't think there were elements of Sam, which I'll be honest, I don't see him as a neurodivergent character personally in the same way that I think Susie very much is. And I do, and I see a lot of, I see a lot of my female autistic friends, 
Lillian included, in Susie in, in a number of different ways. Sam, but, but Sam is, the, the term that's given to him is emotionally disturbed, which is very unfair. And it's also, in some respects, also used for Susie. There's a, there's a larger conversation there, I think, about how, especially in the, 60, the 50s and 60s, understandings of mental health, especially amongst children, was extremely poor. And there was a tendency to lump a great deal of complex needs into simple packages. And emotionally disturbed is perhaps the easiest one of those to, to, to put out there. Um, I, I, I personally think of Sam as somebody who has suffered a great deal of trauma in terms of he is repeatedly abandoned, repeatedly isolated. His parents have passed away. For reference, Sam is an orphan, and that's mm. made very clear very early on. He is, his, his difference comes from perhaps being isolated by his circumstances, not so much as Susie, who is isolated by what, what the film seems to suggest as something perhaps a little bit more um, vital, which I think Lillian and I would perhaps read more as being neurodivergent. If... Anderson did come up with a neurodivergent character. It's probably Max from Rushmore, mm. who is my favourite. Uh, do you mean a male neurodivergent character? Uh, yes, I beg your pardon. Yes, that no, is no, what no, I, I, just, I just wanted to clarify because I, I, yes. I, think, I think that it's something really interesting is that his, his, his sort of autistic coded characters are mostly female. Mm. Yeah, well, yes. As, as soon as you said that, I remembered uh, you and I have had discussions about Margot Tenenbaum. Of course. Uh, and as you said earlier, and Margot arguably does fall into that categorization. Um, in, in the male neurodivergence, it's Max, who is a character yeah. I feel very, very strongly towards and was very similar to as a teenager. Um, but I think it's in line with Anderson's general interest in outside of the social sphere, staying outside of a social sphere, and in particular emotional repression that comes from that. And I'd like to read, uh, I, I was reading another article by a gentleman called Kevin Henderson uh, yesterday about Anderson uh, and emotionality. And uh, he briefly mentions a various selection of the writers who've talked about uh, um, Anderson. Um, so there's a couple of things. Firstly, like the guarded children of emotionally remote parents, Anderson's characters can be viewed as preconditioned to under-emoting and imitating the deeply reserved, seemingly blank responses of those they admire. And I think there's a couple of things to think there about in terms of both Sam being an orphan and having that emotional reticence, but also in terms of, um, one, one could argue... Uh, there is a certain sense, both in Sam and Susie, arguably, of a almost a extremely premature uh, maturity. They there, there's a great deal, I think, yeah. in the film about um, them acting as adults, effectively. I mean, they're 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 what is their runaway together? But but like you know, two kids trying to be like adults, um, and that has that wonderfully sweet scene at the beach to uh, Francois Hardy's uh, C'est le temps d'amour. Um, but also there's the entire wedding sequence with uh, Jason Schwartzman, mm. which is hysterically funny for how, A, under, underplayed it is, but also how it's very clearly two kids trying to act like grown-ups. And I think that's incredibly autistic. <laughs> and I think that also relates to Max as well, who is a figure who is 
desperately trying to be a grown-up, even though he is maybe 16, if that. So uh, so that's, that's sort of my take on Sam, is that he is mm. probably not autistic. He is very much traumatised, but the responses are very similar because they provide him and Susie with a shared connection of being mm. outsiders. That, that's my two cents anyway. Yeah, yeah. Go on, David. Yeah, sorry. No, this is just uh, this is really fascinating. It's really interesting. I mean, I, for for a moment there, I was thinking about if we were to take both Sam and Susie as autistic characters, um, which he could potentially do. It's interesting to think of them as. It's interesting to think them through as the kind of the the difference that manifests that that hmm, what we're trying to say here the difference of autism in females and autism in males and how um, uh, and how it's yeah and how in some respects a kind of a, a male autistic child perhaps um hmm, i don't want to say has an easier time of things but kind of can uh, there's this that there's mm. the idea that kind of maleness you're not is, entirely wrong yeah you're not entirely wrong actually if i'm brutally honest there's a sort of eccentricity that male males can get away with a bit more and i feel like sam almost falls into that category because he can join the scouts he can um you know uh he do, he does all of this thing where he well he's described as the least popular scout but he's very good scout like he's very resourceful he can he pitches the perfect kind of camping area and uh, edward norton as the as the scout master um you know rewards him later on for for saying how wonderful of, of a scout he is and all this kind of thing um he's very forthright he's very focused he sort of knows what he he's he wants and and he goes out and gets it kind of thing whereas susie as a kind of female autistic figure is has these expectations placed upon her which are impossible as a lot of um young girls do and uh and and therefore perhaps that then generates this anger that she has and this kind of frustration that enables her to, to lash out so in a curious kind of way it's an interesting study on the the, the different ways in which autism manifests itself according to 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 gender trappings in a way um so you can sort of think of it in that way i was kind of looking at sam really as a kind of autistic figure although it's interesting how you how you frame it ethan because he he is careful to suggest it to well to say that he is an orphan and there is this suggestion that sam is acting in the way that he is because of because he's an orphan and because he's lost his parents, there's a kind of reason given to it. There was another film we, we covered on this podcast um, a while back, uh, Lars and the Real Girl, um, mm. which is similar in that way because the character from that, Lars, who is played by Ryan Gosling, um, the, the, the reasoning for his quote-unquote emotional disturbance or the, his, his strange way of behaving was again related back to a sort of previous family trauma so there's this curious sort of like connection that's made with like trauma as a way of, of like uh, yeah as a kind of trigger for a, a, a child to misbehave um perhaps that's maybe a bit of a lazy stereotype in some ways you know it's perhaps it's unfair to say that all orphans are going to turn out to be emotionally disturbed because they don't have proper parents but then there's that scene isn't there earlier on early on in the in the film where um bruce willis as the police uh, officer uh, phones up his foster parents to say to, to say to his foster parents that that Sam has gone missing, and his foster parents are just like, yeah, he does this all the time. Um, we're not going to let him come back now. This is enough. Um, and I sort of thought, oh, well, that's not 
that's not very good foster parenting. I mean, that's like you've just abandoned your this this kid. He's only twelve. He's not like had that long to be a, a, an orphan in your care. And they're very quite coldly just say, okay, that's enough. We've had enough of him now. Um, he, he's gone. And I sort of sort of think, well, to what extent is Sam suffering from a, 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 the trauma of losing his parents right. um, versus to what extent is he suffering from not being properly looked after by the fostering social care system as well? And like, has he been failed not by them as well? Because there are plenty of children that end up in foster homes who who end up with foster parents who are brilliant and look after them well, and they turn out to be perfectly rounded individuals. And that's, of course, something that comes across his his entire filmography. I mean, it's in, not not just in terms of sort of, uh, uh, you know, th- there's always orphans, like um, uh, Margot Tenenbaum's an orphan. She's adopted by mm-hmm. um, Roy, Royal and... Um, and um, Anna uh, Tenenbaum in, in Royal Tenenbaums, and and um, there's Zero uh, in Grand Budapest, of course, and and Ned in um, in Steve Sassou, sort of. Mm, yes, very true. You know, there's a very, there's a very good book of art, sort of inspired by Wes Anderson, called Bad Dads, and it all sort of comes down to these the sort of the the bad pr- male sort of patriarchal figure in in these people's lives, and of course Max only has a has a father in 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 Rushmore, and um, where are sort of uh, Owen and Luke Wilson's parents in Bottle Rocket? You know, all this sort of all of these things, all of these sort of behaviours, these these sort of like sort of going off the beaten path often comes down to a lack of sort of sh- strong or positive parental figures in the characters' lives. Um, and of course, in the case of, of of Susie, her parents are sort of going through a very rough patch in their, yeah. in their marriage. Um, Francis McDormand is having is having an affair with Bill Murray. Bill Murray? Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis. Yeah. <laughs> They're so different and yet so similar in this film. She <laughs> <laughs> has a type. She has a type. Yeah, I mean, understandable. Yeah, I mean, Francis go for it. Yeah, 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 exactly. But um, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's something really interesting and sort of you know touching on 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 ideas of trauma and how that can sort of lead to to certain insecurities and 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 sort of a a, a form of behavior that's sort of mm. not you you, you know that what why why do the other boys in the khaki scout troop sort of pick on sam or or, mm. or you know there's that bit when edward norton is sort of saying sam is the is is the least popular mem- member of the troop by some margin <laughs> it's like uh, it's like ah oh, sam um, because he's you know he's the one who sort of yeah everyone else everyone else in that in that in that troop is really shit at doing scouting things you know there's yeah. that sort of when when edward norton is sort of walking through and i th- and i think and, and i think i think that he he relates to sam you know, yeah. he's a he's he's someone who is a maths teacher um, and scout leader on the side. Oh, wait, is it the other way around? And it's like yeah. it's um, it's so interesting to see their relationship, and then later on Captain Sharp's relationship with Sam and how they they form this bond. And I think it's so beautiful and 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 important for him. And I think I think it would be. I mean, it would be so great to see sort of what happens to these kids later on. Mm. I mean, well, well, actually, they show up in Jim Jarmusch's Patterson, which I love. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Which I still need to they see. Show, they show up on the bus in Patterson. Um, and they're still together. Uh, <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's like, 
Wait, well, yeah, how did they I like get that. there? I like that a lot. From, from Penzance, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking end up in Patterson. Sorry. Speak, no, yeah, no, no, I'm going well, on a tangent. No, it's all right. I'd actually, well, we've talked a lot about character. We've talked a lot about character motivation. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to talk before we close, and I know we've probably got about maybe 20 minutes left, if that. I'd like to talk about something that you brought up right at the beginning, Lillian, and that's your joy. And indeed, pleasure, I would say, at the cinematic stylings of Anderson, and by which I mean its formal mm. properties. And I want mm. to talk a little bit more about, well, for, first, I'd like you to, if you can, because I know it's incredibly tricky to do, to, to try and summarize why something provides pleasure, why mm. the aesthetics of Anderson in particular provide a sense of pleasure. As specifically for me, I find the opening sequence of Moonrise Kingdom, the which is the wonderful title sequence set to Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, mm-hmm. uh, and then instantly followed by Bob Balaban explaining the <laughs> New Panzant's geography to be one of the great, great scenes in an Anderson film. And I was wondering, yeah, how how do you find pleasure and what does pleasure look like for you in an Anderson film? Yeah, I think that's um, this. I mean, there's almost too many aspects to summarize, <laughs> but um, I, I I think the reason why may 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 maybe the last. So, I mean, it's the same with the opening of of Royal Tenenbaums. It's it's his use of music in 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 perfect synchronization with 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 the 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 movement of the camera and the editing that I find so overwhelming. Um, and 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 it come. I, I absolutely love Benjamin Britten. In fact, the first time I ever heard Benjamin Britten was when I was a child and I was in a production, a parish production of Noah's Blood at my oh, local wow. church. So, <laughs> yeah. This I, film I, is just I, your I, life, isn't it? <laughs> it, it, it? Yeah, when I kind of say that I'm just Susie, I really am just yeah. Susie. Um, You've not stabbed it's... me with lefty scissors yet, so uh, <laughs> we're, we're not that oh, far. Dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. But... but um, <laughs> but but yeah, like um, and, and I think that was the first time I ever heard Benjamin Britten's music. And I remember it being so overwhelming. I was just got so emotional hearing this music. I mean, obviously, it was nowhere near as sort of perfect a production as it is in this. I mean, the the, the production values of this parish church in New Penzance are insane. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, the, gotcha. the, 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 the sort of the point where it gets to um, I mean, the movement called um, the Spacious Firmament on High, which is one of my absolute favorite pieces of music ever written um and the way that Desplat sort of mirrors Britain's styling we have the the playful pizzicato from the simple symphony in there we have um songs for a friday afternoon the cuckoo at the, at the end which mm, is which is gorgeous and 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 the and the use of sort of cuckoo imagery throughout actually because there's also the sanson from carnival of the animals later yes, on yes very true and very sort true. of the idea of these these Okay, I'm going to nerd out on classical music for a second. Do it. Do like, it. Sort of, <laughs> the, the, the sort of the symbols of the different birds that come through in the music, um, of different music about individual birds, and they're sort of like the cuckoo, and which is obviously you know a derogatory word for 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 someone who has uh, sort of neurodivergence often. And um, and then the moment when they're at when they're in their moonrise kingdom, in their their spe- safe space, in their sort of special inlet of the island. It's Sanson's apiary of like mm. the birds coming together, and we hear Leonard Bernstein's voice, and it's like ah, childhood. Um, <laughs> um, but but I find I find that so beautiful, and the way they come together, and then you get 
Susie's taste in music, which is also very similar to mine, which is, as you say, Francois Hardy and, um, and yeah, yeah, music. I mean, you know that Susie's going to grow up to just be an absolute proper, like, nouvelle vague emo girl, and I love it. Um, because uh, she... Like, got the, the, she's got the, the eyeshadow. Yeah, she's exactly. Eye she's got, like, Anna Karina blue eyeshadow, mm. and she's got... And, 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 and as you say, she's listening to um, Le Temps de l'Amour from, from Tout les garçons et les filles, which is, which is a gorgeous album, and it's all about sort of the 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 the, the anxieties and difficulties of, of young love and, and of course of young sexuality, which is what's taking place in that scene when they're dancing on the beach. And she has this wonderful line about what this thing that 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 she thinks her boobs will grow or whatever, and 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 he's sort of dealing with sort of the, the, how, how specific, shall, shall we say natural heterosexual biological response reactions yeah. i must say yes. i must say i think that's a lovely scene i think that's a oh, really it's gorgeous and because I, I and I, I think the reason why i mean like watching it now and like there's um i don't know if you've seen it on netflix this show called heartstopper and everyone talks about yeah, yeah 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 you know and and people keep saying uh, you know uh, this uh, this idea of sort of a heartstopper moment where someone sort of first comes realizes about their sexuality or whatever what i find so striking in media like that particularly in that one is just how non-sexual it is like mm. it's there's there's no depiction of sort of young boys having sort of unintentional erections or, or or girls suddenly being like oh my goodness i have these these feelings in my in my secondary sexual characteristics <laughs> for want of a better term um and and i think that scene is so so beautiful and so tender in that way um that, that i think i find it quite you know lots of this film is overwhelming for me in terms of, as I, as I, as i say but i think i think that scene is so special and it's so important and great that that susie's able to express that Mm. as well you know it's not it's not just coming from sam um which you know a lesser male filmmaker may well do um, to well, choose to sort of hone in on that aspect yeah. rather than looking at both characters and I, and I think that's what's so so special about wes's films I and mean, particularly this one and royal Telephones yeah. is that these that you have these female characters who are developing their sexuality. I mean, I think, of course, of the the scene in Royal Tenenbaums when, when <laughs> Marco Tenenbaum's file comes up and um, all, all, all it, done to the Ramones, which is a great all done great... to the the, the the sort of montage to the Ramones of the many um, sexual exploits and explorations of Marco Tenenbaum, um, <laughs> both both with men and with women, yeah. and it's like, oh my god, okay. <laughs> 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 Um, Some wiser kind of, decisions than it, others. It should be as, said. As, as I, yes, indeed. I, I suppose what that that's that's sort of the lineage that I am trying to drive out between Susie and, and Marco in terms of sort of getting older is that you know Susie's got the the, the sexual revolution ahead of her. She's going to have an absolute whale of a time right. <laughs> and, and learn a lot more about herself. Um, as 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 indeed is expressed in a lot of yeah yeah music as, as I'm saying and, and and Nouvelle Park Cinema we should do Nouvelle Park Cinema on this, we should. On this yeah we should actually yeah, yeah. <laughs> well you can, you can choose one David you wanted to to say something no yeah obviously. I was just going to say because I think it's really important that I'm, I'm really glad that we've landed on this scene actually because one of the questions I was going to ask was you know like does he get away with this scene um because it is a scene between two um you know underage children effectively uh, uh, discovering their sexuality and there is a, a touching upon uh 
you know, there isn't a sex scene, but there is a touching upon this this sort of this this move towards sexuality. And you know, when I when you watch that and uh, you think of it in terms of male gaze, and you think of it in terms of the, uh, an adult male filmmaker making this film, and mm. you know, she is quite she's she's in her underwear at this point, effectively, um, a Susie. But but I, I agree that it is a lovely scene, a very tender scene, and it works. And I, But I was curious as to why it works, and I think you've kind of navigated why. But for me, I think it's because, yeah, it removes... It's, it's romantic, but it removes eroticism. It doesn't um, sexualize them, but it is about sex. So it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating sort of achievement in many ways, because mm. as you say, other male filmmakers would not get away with this, or just any filmmaker, yeah. you know, other filmmakers it's, would struggle with the scene like It's this. a platonic form of gazing. That, yeah, that, yeah. Yes. It's, 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 yes, it's kind of what, what I've kind of tried to get at in terms of the cinematography, and I think this, 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 that, that scene really is is so perfect to sort of say it's <clears> very <throat> French. It's why I associate yeah. with partic- particularly with with f- female French filmmakers, um, and sort of obviously there's a there's a sexual form of the female gaze, but there's also mm. like I don't know if you've seen like Bergman Island by Mia Hansen Love or, or any of Mia Hansen Love's mm. films, and there are just scenes where people just walk around with no clothes on, like there's just girl, I, girls in their underwear, and and there is nothing sexual about it yeah. because there is nothing mm. sexual about it when I don't know I get up in the morning and I put my clothes on, like mm. you know, it's like what 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 that's just happening, you know, the idea that all women are sort of sexual all the time is absurd yeah I, I do and, want and, to actually... and cinema was hollywood cinema would generally sort of yeah. um dri- you know drive away from that um but yeah I'll, in a minute even <laughs> <laughs> but but i but i think i think i think that the sort of the minimalism and 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 the sense of distance and withdrawal from these scenes you know that that scene is one of one of those times where it's just a perfect symmetrical shot you have the record player in the center and you have the two children dancing together yeah. in, on the sand there is nothing else being done there it's just watching without investment which i find across all of his films i mean there are there are obviously exceptions and there are times when maybe there is something sexual to it um but i don't i don't i certainly don't think in that scene that that's what's going on i think it's very refreshing look at what you know as you say there is of course an issue with with depicting something like that but that doesn't mean to say that it doesn't happen or that it's not exactly a natural part of growing up exactly mm-hmm. it does tap into that you know because i remember when i was 12 years old you are starting to think in those directions you don't fully understand it at that point um but things are starting to happen your body is starting to change and you are starting to you know look at other people in a kind of romanticized way and yeah and he understands that and that is part of what he's trying to drive towards in this film and it's it's a delicate balance but it's still an important thing to be able to capture sorry ethan you were desperate to speak ethan, well, ethan is exploding to speak right now yeah. so. <laughs> I, 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 I can't help it i have many things to say um go for it the the, the female filmmaker which comes to mind when you were talking about it, and actually it's a really good comparison in my mind, is Varda, and in particular mm-hmm. Le Bonheur, which is my favourite Varda film, which is a candy, which is, again, it's a very intense candy-coloured film, although she uses that sort of picture book quality in a certainly more pointed manner than Anderson, who is, uh, I think, is more interested in 
movement and form and flow. And I think that also explains his exceptional choices of mu uh, music. This was actually the first uh, film that ever introduced me to Britain, actually. I'd never heard Young Persons Go Out to the Orchestra uh, before this, or Noise Flood, or uh, the, the gorgeous Cuckoo song at the end. But I think Varda is an interesting, and Le Bonheur in particular, is a very interesting comparison um, in terms of gazing without eroticism and gazing with sort of fascination, perhaps, curiosity. I think, I think uh, for those who have not seen Le Bonheur, Le Bonheur is a very, <clears throat> very good film about a postal worker. No, no, a, a man who has a wife and family and who falls in love with a postal worker and it's depicted as the most natural thing in the world. Uh, and he takes her as a mistress and there is some sort of familial strife and the end of the film, I won't spoil the end of the film, but the end of the film is a beautiful sort of inverse of the beginning of the film. And it's, it's a quite, it's a, it's a darker film. I think about. Well, I'd say it's extremely harrowing. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very, it's a very dark film. It's a brilliant film. But mm. it's one where it's one where I think a bit like Anderson, the bright colouring and sort of the ostensibly quite not cheerful but certainly pleasant images work in counterpoint to the much darker story underneath. And I think that's and I think it's uh, a fitting comparison considering Anderson has spoken numerous times of his admiration for the French New Wave. Um, I mean, just watch the French series, thanks, Troy. <laughs> like, <laughs> which I've not, which I've not seen actually. I've still not seen that. One. Oh, okay, you must. I know, I know. I know. My mum wants to see it, so I'm going to watch it with her when I go back home next. Um, yeah, and so and um, but yeah, he's he's admitted a great uh, sort of comradeship with Truffaut and Roma in particular. You can see a lot of them in his works. Hugely. Hugely so. And, um, but yeah, that visual style is in, in its closest form. It is probably closest to something like Vardas Le Bonheur, but it's entirely unique. There is, I, I've tried to think of cinematic equivalents. The only one that comes to mind is Ophals, uh, who is another of my favourite filmmakers. But that's the thing about Anderson is that he has, you can see, I think, through his career, a constant refining of form until you get what we have now, which is a, I think it's perhaps unkind to say this, and I certainly think I will get a good amount of debate by saying this, a static formal quality, wherein the ideas and motifs are repeated, uh, the formal qualities are repeated, especially sort of the face-on mm. um, action, especially for violent sequences, where sequences of personal conflict, uh, intense very head-on shots, you see that in Rushmore, you see that in the two... Uh, confrontations Susie and Sam have between with, with uh, Lucas Hedges's awful, awful Boy Scouts, <laughs> who is a thoroughly obnoxious little swine. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and you see it in other films where it's sort of breaking, if you wish, it's breaking that delicate visual style that has been created. Whether that in itself becomes airless, as uh, Siegel talks about early on, is up for debate, really. It certainly, I think, for me, sometimes I find it a little repetitious, and I can find I can find some of his films much of a muchness. I remember not finding Isle of Dogs to be particularly good, right. and I 
I found Isle of Dogs. Okay, that's wrong. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> Lillian, Lillian, you and I will always disagree on this, and that's absolutely I, fine. I, yeah, I, I, I think I like I like the comparison to Bonnet, and I and I think that there's a that the, the, these two films would make a sort of perfect pairing in you know dream dream double bill kind of mm. thing because the, the the scene where you know we've talked about this before, but it's, it's such a perfect scene where um, Susie and Sam first sort of. Go, uh, meet meet again before we sort of have the flashback to the Noah's Flood production mm-hmm. um, with with the, in in the um, in the field, which is I would say very obviously inspired by Bonner, and I can't think it could possibly be anything. Else. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, e- e- either that or the childhood of Theresa May. I, I, I mean, who, who knows? <laughs> but, um, that is a deep, that is that a deep cut. <laughs> but I, I I would also you know the use of music in this and and and, and when when Wes Anderson talks about. It, he talks about Varda a lot, obviously, as, as as you know. But he also talks about uh, his use of music so often. And 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 I think what's so interesting is that when you're saying about Britain, is that Wes Anderson himself hadn't come across Britain really until he made this film, mm-hmm. and he suddenly decided that he wanted to put lots of Britain in it because I, th- I, th- I think Dave Blar had played him some Britain or something, and mm. you know. I mean, is Benjamin Britten the greatest composer ever? Probably. I, I would almost certainly say he probably Certainly is. one of the best English composers, I would say, alongside Purcell in my mind. Well, that's very fair because both of them are in this. Um, but, yeah, yeah, well, exactly. This is also my introduction to Purcell. But, but Bonner is also, um, you know, it has a soundtrack entirely consisting of Mozart and Beethoven and and, and that, that use of... of um, of classical music in, in as 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 sort of the transitions between diegetic and non-diegetic is, is are just sublime and mm. I, I forget what that's called it has a name meta-diegetic sort of, it's like j fading or something yeah, it's yeah. like oh gosh i should be better at my actual cinema terms but um, I, I don't yes. know this and i don't know this and i'm doing a phd it's fine <laughs> so, so so it's it's the moment when she's reading the book at the start and we first and then, go from indoors open curtains title for yeah. orchestra perfect yeah. um absolutely sublime but the, the, the it's it's this sort of way in which we go from looking at to sort of looking with people that i think is so key to that the, the the general aesthetic and I think it's why it's so interesting to talk about Anderson's films is because you never really know when you're looking when when, when that distinction is actually being made are we looking at this objectively or are we looking at it from from the perspective of a character um it's much more obvious in other films but those those sorts of movements and transitions of of, of okay now we're we're seeing things from Susie's perspective. It's like um, that flashback that we have to the Noah's Flood scene mm. is very much from Sam's perspective, mm. um, and mm. later on we get we get more Susie's perspective on, on on things. And I think that that sort of interplay is so fascinating in a way that most directors won't dare to do because you don't need you don't need there's no hand holding going on. You know you could quite easily watch and probably enjoy a lot of Wes Anderson's films without being so aware of these things or thinking or doing so much thinking while, while doing so but you 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 achieve and, and get so much more out of it by having that, that sort of foreground of awareness and not mm. and knowledge and and it, it, it's why it's why perhaps I've you know this film for example I've, I must have seen hundreds of times because 
every time you you spot another sort of layer or or measure textual reference or mm-hmm. um allusion to something mm-hmm. cultural that you might not previously have been familiar with um, one of my one of my favorite little yeah. ones it's it's not really a cultural one. it's just an adorably sweet one is um is the phone operator who appears a couple of times and doesn't have much dialogue and you see right at the end you see on edward norton's desk a a, a framed photo of her looking at him and that is one of my favorites that's one of my favorite little well that's one of the things i will always love about anderson is his attention to detail which in itself is incredibly autistic i find that that attention to tiny little tiny little details i mean I'll be honest, I'm more of a details man than anything else. Um, and that mm. photo is one of those things. And then there's the, the pen knife, for example. Yeah. There's the map of New Penzance, which has like references to other islands, which to my knowledge don't exist. I've not actually done any research on New England's geography. Um, mm. But it's that level of mm. like tiny, tiny, tiny little thing. It reminds me of... Um, one of my favourite things is, uh, and I'll let you speak, David, because I know I'm waffling, uh, is <laughs> Lucino Visconti, the great Italian director, was obsessed with realism. He famously had, um, like, for when he'd made uh, The Leopard, which is my favourite film of his, he famously spent large amounts of money for, like, the men to have handkerchiefs in their coats they would never be seen but he wanted them there and it's that sort of attention to detail which i adore and i feel like anderson understands that and Mm. anderson understands the tiny details which make up a much wider world in and and that's where that's where i think more than the movement more than the music which is exceptional and more than the color it's the detail which i find the most pleasurable but you were going to say something David. well no i was just going to agree with that you're absolutely right that and 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 not only is it that he's putting detail in there he's doing it deliberately to um to sort of <clears throat> cherish each and every character that he's created in the film as well because he's he's pairing up those details with each character so that you that, that, that each one has a sort of emotional payoff, I guess, or an emotional connection in some way, so that that um, that there are, there are rich details for, for even for, you know, Edward Norton's character, um, for Harvey Keitel's other Scoutmaster character, there are details mm. in uh, connected to him. There's Francis McDermott's character, Mrs. Bishop, and her megaphone that she has all the time. Mm. These, these little additions that each character has just to to that saves them from being these kind of flat caricatures but has gives them that kind of rounded life and i think that that you know that picture that photo um with edward norton's scoutmaster is a beautiful little example of that um as a as a you know he's using details to it to to um enhance each of his characters which i feel like he has if even all the tiny individual background characters like all the the individual scouts all seem to have a kind of just additional little thing that's mm. perhaps not necessarily explained, but it just gives you a sense of who they are. Mm. Like there's that one, isn't there? Um, oh, lazy, lazy eye, lazy eye with the eye patch, and, or Gadge, um, or Gadge with Gadge. his like um, yeah. curious George Dad hat. It's yeah. quite impressive. And just little little things, and they, it, sometimes they're, they're there is a comedic uh, insight into these little into these individual characters, but they also do give each one of these characters a little bit more life, perhaps than 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 is necessary or that is needed and there's lots of lovely little moments and and there's a moment isn't there when um i can't remember who it is 
one of the cases when they're all together in the church towards the end and when somebody says i need a coffee and in the background that one of the sort of more senior scouts sort of nods to one of the more junior scouts and goes go and get the coffee like that and he just and he just runs off and he barely sort of notice it but it was like oh that's a really funny little detail and i also love i mean it's worth mentioning but i also love the um my favorite joke of the film i think is uh when uh, at the very beginning when Sam has escaped and Edward Norton's looking around his scout tent and then there's a poster on the wall and he takes the poster off and there's a hole and it's that kind of Shawshank Redemption. Mm. Jiminy uh, Cricket, yeah. he blew the coop. Yeah, and I just think, <laughs> oh, that is so sweet. That's really funny. Um, but was it, what else I was going to say? Yeah, well, actually, there, were, there was actually a... Because I read, read... Just going back to that Jacob Siegel article again, because there was a... Um, a quote I wrote down from that, which is earlier on in that in that article that he wrote, where he says one of the things about Anderson's aesthetic is this, um, or the, I suppose his characters, is that, um, or I guess his themes that come across from his films, is this idea of having a fierce, a fierce loyalty to one's passion as its own victory. A fierce, a fierce loyalty to one's passions as its own victory. And I quite like that as an explanation of um, how a lot of Anderson's characters seem to sort of reach a point of success is by having uh, uh well the sort of i'm thinking a bit about max from rushmore as well and how he has these kind of fierce loyalties to his passions that that cause him a lot of problems and cause him a lot of distress and and make him quite annoying for a lot of people around him but ultimately they are they see him through to a victory and i think a lot of that is happening here as well sam has uh, has passions that he sees through victory the scoutmaster has his his passions that um of of being this scout leader and of trying to keep the scout troop together he then loses his entire scout group they all go missing his entire khaki scout scout group all go missing because they've they've all gone out to help sam um and he's reprimanded by harvey harvey Keitel, uh, commander pierce for this but then later is but he's got this kind of loyalty to making sure that everything is brought back together and and it does work out for him and so there's a there's a nice cherishing i think in in anderson films about this kind of uh, the victory that comes from having passions and keeping them keeping them close to you and 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 keeping exploring them which i think is a very autistic trait in many ways Mm -hmm. um as potentially demonstrated by you two today in this conversation, um, because you've just been spilling forth about this film, about Anderson yes. films, but also about classical music and all of these other kind of mm-hmm. um, passions that you guys have, that that that, that obviously is awoken in some way by 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 Wes Anderson and the way he makes these films. Yeah, I guess I would agree with that. Definitely, I know. I I, I think I think that, that this film perhaps lends itself to that more than Anderson's other films because mm-hmm. there is a real sort of you know, it doesn't matter where it's set. There's very much a sense that this could be any ordinary person just like living their normal life. Because there's a lot of privilege in a lot of Anderson's films and a lot of sort of, yeah, um, it's it can be very specific in sort of time and place. And and, and, and sometimes that could be quite jarring or, or offsetting. Whereas, you know, Benjamin Britten wrote Noah's Blood for amateurs, so, you know, to, to, to sort of August Cousteau anyone can cook kind of idea mm. like you know um that, that that there is a sort of anyone can can do the can create things and, and can find their own way and i think that that that's perhaps why anyone watching this film can find themselves within it i mean i, I say that as someone who very much finds herself within it but yeah i i, I think it's very it's 
it's maybe easier to do that with this film than some of his other films. Yeah, like, I'd agree. Like Tenenbaums, where they're in sort of this, you know, this insanely talented and wealthy yeah. family and, and Rushmore, whereas Or like, Darjeeling Limited, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exa- 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 or Zissou. Exactly. Another, ba- n- another very toxic relationship with parents between and, and, and yes, siblings. Yes, just... <laughs> It really is in all of his films. <laughs> <laughs> that man has some serious father issues. Anyway. <laughs> Does he, though? Not necessarily. Not really, no. It's just, it just, it, he well, just finds he... it interesting as plot, I think, is the idea. Yeah, I think he comes, yeah. comes back to it a lot, doesn't he? And I think in this film, yeah. we have a lot of dads. Um, but we, do, we also have a... Um, we, I really like Bruce Willis's character of uh, mm. Captain mm. Sharp and, and the way that that relationship plays out. Um, it's probably my favourite. It's probably yeah. my favourite Bruce Willis performance. I'd yeah, say. It's actually, one of his he's last, great, isn't he? It's also one of his last great ones before they sadly he has declined in his mental he- in his health recently yeah. in a very very tragic mm. circumstances. And so watching this is almost quite sad in some respects because it's, yeah. it's, it's a beautiful performance. It is. It's a lovely understated Bruce Willis performance, actually. Yeah. Some some actors fit into the, the Wes Anderson sort of troupe or family um, better than others. Um, I would definitely say that, that, that Bruce Willis feels very at home in this film. Mm. Um, he's certainly the outsider from the rest because everyone else sort of, you know... Bob Butler, Andrzej Schwarzman, and and um, Bill Murray has been, been in most of his, uh, Edward yeah. Norton, been in loads of his film. Whereas Bruce, this is the only one that Bruce Willis is in, um, and I think that I think he he fits in, but but is sort of this distinct character yeah. in many ways. In the same way that George Clooney is in Fantastic Mr. Fox or mm. Timothy Bleach in Chalamet and um, French Dispatcher, or, or Gene Hackman in Royal Tenenbaums. Exactly, as I say. So, some some actors fit into the family better than others. Um, <laughs> look, look, looking at you, Chalamet. But <laughs> but but yeah, I I think that there's there's a lot in that Bruce Willis character. He's so caring yeah. and empathetic in ways that that sometimes isn't the case in Wes Anderson films. Mm. That there is sort of. Although he does remind me a little bit of Max's father from from Rushmore, yeah. Max's barber's mm. the barber father. Oh, oh Seymour the Cassell. Great C- Seymour Cassell, who who, who again has, plays lots of really lovely, wholesome characters yeah. in, in in Anderson's films, yes. like when he's dusty and Royal Tenenbaums. I just absolutely love that. Character. And and he's <laughs> he's um, Zisu's mentor, and there's a he's lovely a there's a lovely lovely shot of at the beginning. Of Zisu, who is a character who shows very little emotion except snark throughout that, mm. and he gives and he gives uh, his character just a little kiss on the head, and it's this very mm. sweet, sort of like almost like a, a son to a father sort of relationship, and it's mm. a, and it's evident that that was a very yeah. positive relationship for Z, uh, for Zisu. Yeah, before he gets ripped to shreds by a jaguar shark. <laughs> Lillian, why, Lillian, why did you have you to spoil things? <laughs> thanks, thanks, Lillian. Thanks, Lillian. You've, you've ruined it for everybody now. Talking you've of ruined it. Actually, talking of spoiling things a little bit, but um, I wondered if we just wanted to briefly reflect upon the um, the Tilda Swinton uh, social mm. services character yeah. in this. Oh, in this film. for the love of God! I know, um, but I think it's. I actually really like it, and I think it's handled really well. Mm. I think that 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 Anderson is making quite an, a neat little point here about the the perhaps about the ridiculousnesses of of the the bureaucratic processes but then mm. you know there's the suggestion that that sam um is going to be taken away 
Is it Sam and Susie? But certainly Sam, I think, is going to be taken away. Sam's going to be put. Sam's going to be put into this dreadful orphanage. Yeah. And, and have electroshock, more importantly. Yes, exactly. More importantly, exactly. I think the electroshock. And, and everybody yeah. is like, apart from um, Tilda Swinton's unnamed social services character, she's just called social services, <laughs> which is wonderful. <laughs> which is genius because who in social services is actually a, Has a name. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and dresses like a deranged um, oh, yeah. Jackie Kennedy in like yeah. the blue pants. What a huge that, blue pants. Yeah, she does. Bizarre comparison. <laughs> <laughs> Look, my mind works in mysterious ways. She, she is, she is. I like. I, I think she's very funny in it, and yeah. she does remind me a little bit of another character of mindless bureaucracy she plays, which is um, in Snowpiercer, where she is oh, yeah. the, where the the Ayn Randian. Mm. Weird northern Yorkshire. Yorkshire yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I put a shoe on my head, yeah, sort yeah, of, yeah. you are not a shoe. Uh, it's, a, it's a fabulous performance, but it's another very funny performance of. If my grandma had wills, would she be a bike? No, it is. It is that. It's that sort of thing. I had one of his pizzas recently. It was very tasty. Um, and, <laughs> no, they're really good. Really good. Really recommend them. Um, bring it back, all, Ethan. Bring it back. Yeah. No, in all seriousness, it is. It's. She's. I, I think there is something there about the faceless. Yeah. Mass of Yoxi to the fact that she has no name. She yeah. is entirely defined by her position. Mm. Um, and she speaks with this very strange clipped tone, which I find very yeah. interesting in comparison to the very languid voices of other characters. Yeah. She is she was almost I think she was almost told specifically to speak in this very quick, sort of snappy yeah. uh, mm. tonality, which I find very, very interesting and actually quite jarring in a in a very good way. Yeah, she's the only unmagical character in the in the thing, isn't she? She's this invasive force into this basically magic island where the rest of them well, are. Yeah, exist. well, she she is an outsider. Effectively. Yeah, she is the outsider because everyone else on the island. It's also we should also say, you know, this is I'm pretty right certain I'm right in saying that this is the first Anderson that Tilda's in. Yes, and that's correct. She 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 then she's been I think I think then I'm also right in saying she's been in all of them since. Yes, and yes. her characters are always this sort of authority figure who is sort of detached from everything else or mm. even even like the oracle dog in, in yes that's what i was thinking sort of, sort of on she i mean maybe this is just tilda swinton's general sort of being is that she's sort of on a higher plane to everyone else and and, and she sort of comes in deus ex machina like at the end mm. sort of like and this is how um mm. things are going to go she has a very sort of she's like um alec baldwin in in royal ten and Bounds, the sort of narrative narrator um person who's pulling the strings kind and, of figure and which in, is so um, interesting and in grand budapest she is a dame thurnan taxis and who effectively sets the plot in motion well, she, I was going to say she's the she's more a MacGuffin than a yeah. Well, no, very true. She is she yeah she is absolutely the MacGuffin of that film. Originally, that's supposed to be Angela Lansbury, which I think is uh, it wasn't it? yes yeah. Which is what what a, what a world it would have been with Angela Lansbury. Now, mm. no, but I, I yeah I think she fits it very perfectly into the Andersonian world yeah. view by playing mm. these figures of some form of authority and it's a role i don't because you i think lillian would be able to speak more accurately on her collaborations with other directors in particular mm. i'm thinking jarman here who she had a very long and very fruitful collaboration mm. with 
And I feel that the collaboration, obviously they're very different artists, but I feel like there is a very different, it's a very different Tilda who is working with Anderson than with Jarman in my mind. And I'm yeah. wondering whether I'm completely yeah. off, off piece to that. Well, she, she, she's, certainly, she's certainly an actor who has always sort of attached herself to specific mm. auteurs, you know, and, and she's done the same with Joanna Hogg, which is yeah. supremely magnificent. Um, and uh, Gwen Nino uh, as well, for that matter. Indeed, and with Gwen Nino. But they all, they all sort of use her so differently in, in, in their films. Um, and there is, there is, there's an extent of sort of, I mean, how does one read Tilda Swinton? She's often described as sort of being genderless and she's, mm. she's talks about this, this, this herself and, um, and, and almost sort of comedian like, I mean, certainly in Jarman's films, like it's so different from one film to the other, how she's, mm. how she's used and how she's presented. And, and this, you know, of course, in terms of the gen, the, the genderless idea that there's obviously, moments in there's a moment in Caravaggio where she's sort of desired as 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 male and then as female um in a sort of je t'aime one and plus kind of way but not as problematic and um um and and, and obviously in Orlando when there's this sort of mm, uh, you know mm. and, and we shall use and we shall now we shall use she for he for for it would no longer be appropriate with our current standards of of <laughs> of, of, of gender and sexuality and you're know, like mm. oh Virginia <laughs> you, 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 genius! <laughs> you know, um, and and um, and, 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 and I, 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 I think yes, exactly. I, I, th- I think in 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 Anderson's films too. There's there's this sort of. I mean, is she, is she coded as neurodivergent in in in, in these films? I'm. A, That's interesting. I, I suppose. I suppose. Just well, to to some extent, everyone kind of is, and they're sort mm. of. In, in in insofar as sort of autistic people are assumed to be incredibly monotone and you know sort of. Mm humanless or 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 um d- displaying forms of emotional aphasia and yada 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 um which which of course is is, is something that 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 people do criticize this film so i like it because it means that you don't have to read anyone's facial expressions which is <laughs> yeah that is incredibly incredibly difficult to do you get all of their motivations and thoughts through dialogue and mm. um and very clear dialogue which is, which is also very much appreciated in terms of understanding films and understanding characters and I think you're right in terms of the way that Tilda Swinton is sort of told to speak in this film is it, it is that mm. sort of with that level of clarity and crispness that that she has in um I mean have either of you seen French Dispatch no oh she's incredible in it she's she plays this sort of um lecture on art history and she she she's in the se- this segment with um Benicio del Toro and Lea Seydu is in, in in a prison and she's sort of giving an art lecture on this this sort of man in a in in an asylum who who is a great artist but also a sort of incredibly violent and dangerous man and and she's sort of talking about that and it's with this sort of great level of of sort of academic detachment which I, I find, I, I find fascinating, but also frustrating in terms. And and, and may, okay, maybe I will allow myself one criticism of where that. Oh, which, which 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 is that sometimes the lack of emotionality can be too much. Mm-hmm. I think um, that sometimes it, it, there's there's a difference between 
sort of a, 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 a sort of neurodivergent um maybe lack of empathy or, or, or whatever is sort of under understood in that in that sense and um and and sort of an emotional stuntedness that i think in tenenbaums comes through privilege um and certainly tilda swinton's performance in the souvenir oh my goodness you know that sort of like British upper middle class. Mm. Um, she's very good at it. She's excellent. Oh, she, in it. she's she's absolutely magnificent at, at portraying those sorts of characters. But I find it <clears throat> extraordinarily frustrating because there is such a lack of openness in terms mm. of understanding people's behaviours and 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 um, and so on. Um, and I and I, I wonder if to some extent that that is present in some of Wes Anderson's films. I, and, and maybe why I, I this is one of my favourites because mm. I don't think that's so much the yeah. case. What I was driving out with sort of the, the more sort of you can relate to Moonlight's Kingdom perhaps more than you can some of his other films because these aren't people who are sort of. I think there is stuntedness. I think there definitely is with 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 Susie Bishop's parents. Oh my goodness, yeah. you know that that. That they're lawyers and 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 you know there is a level of privilege there but there is there certainly isn't on sam's part sam is someone from the humblest of beginnings yeah mm. but i think that um i think that's i think that partially is why it works so well in moonrise kingdom is because the focus is on these children and not just susie and, and um sam but also the the rest of the scout troop as well um and potentially even Susie's siblings, if you want to stretch it that far, but that we're in the world of children who's who are still figuring out emotionally who they are and still figuring out emotions and understanding those, whether they are sexual emotions, um, uh, familial uh, or based in relationships, whatever it is. Um, whereas, and they are sort of contrasted with these adult figures who are who are supposed to have figured all of this out already. And because they haven't have ended up in these kinds of, you know, worlds of anxiety and depression and confusion and um, trying to sort of uh, sort of own who they are and their identities. Whereas Sam and Susie quite resolutely sort of seem to know who they are and who they want to be. And yet they are still young enough to have not quite figured out how to emotionally relate to everyone all the time. So I think that's why, particularly for me, this the Anderson aesthetic and the Anderson ideas of emotions work so well in Moonrise Kingdoms because we're dealing with that, with these types of people. I think that's why it works. And also I just wanted to say one more thing about the um, the electric shock therapy thing, because what I really like about the mentioning of that which is a kind of darker part of the film is that we get this counterpoint to it later on when Sam actually does get electric shock therapy by being struck by lightning and then just getting up and being like, Oh no, I'm all right. Actually it's fine. Mm. And it was like this like, kind of thing of like, do you know what? Even if he was grabbed by Tilda and taken to the orphanage and put under electric shock therapy, he'd sort of be fine and he'd find a way to escape and it'd be all right. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think we've, covered a very very great deal today on we have. so and we could probably knowing us talk for another four or five hours on this but uh i suggest that we don't yeah yes i agree for the sake of our listeners for the sake of our <laughs> the sake of their attention spans i think that we yeah. should begin to draw things naturally to yeah are there any are there any aspects of it that that we haven't i don't think we have no I, I think, think we've i think we've explored it as fully mm. as possible in my yeah. mind yeah um, I'm sure there's plenty. There always is, but you know we've 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 covered um, 
we've covered the main things, I think. Might 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 need some heavy editing, I dare say. <laughs> there was I doubt it. In, there. I doubt <laughs> it. in any case, uh, if you have anything, uh, dear viewer and listener, that you have uh, feel that we have missed on Moonrise Kingdom, our email is always open for your uh, uh, for your comments. We look forward to them. Um, but for now, it's uh, goodbye from Lillian. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> it's a goodbye from David. Goodbye. <laughs> and it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Thank you, Mr. Paxman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's goodbye from me. <laughs> you have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London, and The Wellcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema, and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.